0: The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. For Leanne and for me, being in Oklahoma City is just always a joy. Uh, we had a season of ministry here. It wasn't very long, but it, it continues to be just a profoundly uh, good memory. It's it uh, being with Alfred and Judy. Uh, being in this town being with you i can remember um ronnie and i go way back if you if you, those of you who know ronnie white uh when <laughs> we didn't know this at the t- i didn't know this at the time but he was trying to poach me and get me to come work at quail springs and my elders were trying to get him to come to golf course road <laughs> and they won so uh that's how, sorry that was that's how that happened um john and kelly have been important uh in our lives for 33 years uh you probably you don't know this i was just thinking that um you had a profoundly important impact on my life when i was very young uh john and kelly were the were the ones who had a great hand in teaching me uh, uh inviting me to explore a deeper understanding of how the holy spirit is at work in our lives um, it, was a, it was a profoundly formative time for me. And so to be with them again is just a real joy. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 5. So at the end of his gospel, John thinks back on the stories that he has chosen to write down. And he says this in John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and and that by believing you might have life in his name. Later he says that Jesus did a lot of other stuff and if he'd written everything down that the world couldn't contain the books that would be written to describe all the things that Jesus did. Now, John's making several important points here. First, he's pointing out the obvious but sometimes overlooked reality that the gospel writers chose, listen, they chose the stories they wanted to tell. They could have written about other events, described other incidents in Jesus' life, but the ones that we have, are the ones they chose to tell us about. Which means that what we read about Jesus aren't a collection of random memories. The stories have a point. They have a purpose. They have a perspective. They have a reason. John says that the point is for me and you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And the end is hugely important. The point isn't just for us to believe something about Jesus, the point is that it should, change, it should change my life, it should impact my life, that by believing I would have life in his name. So this morning I want us to take a close look at one of the miracles that Jesus did and, and try to understand who he was and what he was about so that we can more deeply give him our allegiance and be more intentional about what, uh, being a part of what he's doing in the world. This morning we're going to begin with a story in Mark chapter five about the woman who'd been bleeding for twelve years. I've preached this event many, many times. But but almost always as a part of the larger picture where Jesus comes and, and calms the storm. You remember that story when he when when the storm is raging and the disciples are terrified, and Jesus says, Peace, be still. And the disciples learn something of his power over nature, and then they land they land there on the other side of the of the sea of galilee and the crazy naked demoniac comes running at him and the boat the disciples are climbing back in the boat jesus says whoa and casts out a legion of demons and the man's sitting there dressed his right mind and everything that we might be afraid of in terms of the, the 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 craziness of mind jesus has complete control over and then the last two stories are about jairus and his daughter who's dying and this woman that we're going to talk about this morning. And I've always preached that. It's kind of an arc of the power and the the demonstration of the lordship of Jesus over all things that we might fear. I've always been struck by the contrast in this story between her powerlessness and his effortless power. Without even knowing what's happening, Jesus heals her when nobody else can do anything about it. But this morning, I'd like to really focus on her and what happened to her when she finally got to Jesus. One more thing before we get into her specific story, I want you to keep this question in your heart as we read today. Who and why does Jesus choose to heal? Here's the thing, according to the testimony of Scripture, Jesus didn't heal everything. He, he never dealt with temporary aches and pains. He didn't heal broken bones or headaches. He didn't cure colds or insomnia or nagging back pain. Sorry, Alfred, there's no record of him fixing the flu or acid reflux or tooth decay or a bum knee. That's not to say he couldn't do that, and maybe he did in Matthew chapter 10 and or Luke chapter 10 and Matthew chapter. Nine, maybe when everybody's coming to him and he's healing all day, maybe he, that was a part of it, but that's not what we're told. When Mark chooses what to tell us about Jesus, especially in Mark 1 through 7, there's a kind of a pattern or a theme or a system that starts to become obvious when we pay attention. So ask yourself this question, why her? Let's read beginning in verse 21 of chapter 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was still by the lake. And one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him i I have been in capernaum i have been on the streets here the streets are no more than five or six feet wide if you put a crowd in there it doesn't take more than 10 or 15 people and it's a it's a log jam and they're trying to move through the streets with all these people in this cramped area and, and a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years she had suffered a great deal Under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately. Her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? (laughs) You see the people crowding around you, the disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? And Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, daughter. He doesn't use that language often, but here he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. One of the amazing things about the Gospels is that they're they're both beautifully simple and profoundly deep. You don't need to understand much about Jewish culture or Old Testament history to understand what happens here on this tiny street in Capernaum is both beautiful and powerful. Someone who had suffered for so long finally finds healing in the effortless power of Jesus. This This is good news. But at the same time, there's something more going on here than meets the eye. Something's happening that isn't that far beneath the surface, but it isn't obvious to those of us who didn't grow up as first century Jews. It starts with her description. She's a bleeding woman. To me and to you, that makes us feel compassion. Makes us feel sorry for To the first century Jew, it sets off lights and sirens. Everyone would have known what her condition meant. It meant she was unclean. It meant that she was a part of a class of people who were cut off and excluded from the social and religious life of God's people. She shouldn't have been there she was dangerous, she was infectious, she was contaminated. The idea of being unclean sounds odd to modern people, but it's rooted in Mosaic law and it's hugely significant. Sometimes we confuse being unclean with being sinful or guilty. That's not the same thing. She wasn't guilty. She was contaminated. She hadn't done anything wrong, but there was something deeply wrong with her. Leviticus covers all kinds of things that can make a person unclean. Everything from a skin rash to a shirt with mildew to childbirth to a woman's monthly period to legitimate marital sex would make someone unclean. Everybody was unclean at one time or another. When you're unclean, it meant that you went into some sort of quarantine like a COVID quarantine, only worse, right? And it was, it was important that you didn't come into contact with other people, but it was especially important that you didn't come into contact with anything sacred or holy. In fact, when the Israelites were wandering around the desert, if you were unclean, you had to live outside the camp. You were literally banished. You were unwelcome, unwanted, and contaminated. That was the law. But but the rabbis took it a step or two further. Dr. Paul Penley, in his terrific book, Reenacting the Way of Jesus, describes how the religious teachers took the idea of uncleanliness, unclean, And they added to it what's become known as the exception clause. They said that anyone could come to the temple except, right, the exception clause. Except for the deaf and the mute and the lame and the blind and the mentally unstable and the sick. These people were permanently excluded from participation in the worshiping community and in the temple. In doing this, the rabbis warped the understanding of who God was, and they completely misunderstood and misrepresented his heart for the broken, the unclean, and outsiders. I know it may sound strange to you, it does to me, but the people around Jesus, this is how they grew up. This was normal. This is how they thought and how they treated anybody unclean. Now you know who she is, right? Now you know what's at stake. He should have reprimanded her. He should have sent her away. He should have cut her off. People like her don't have anything to do with God's new kingdom. They shouldn't. They're unclean. But that's not what happened. He stopped. In the middle of an emergency, he stopped. He stopped so that he could find her, so that he could affirm in no uncertain terms that she's no longer on the outside looking in. She's not unclean. She's not rejected. She's not contaminated. She's not damaged goods. She's part of God's purpose. She's a welcome member of God's new kingdom. He calls her daughter for God's sake. And she's not alone. Guess what? Most of the time when Jesus healed, he healed diseases that made people unclean. You know, the deaf and the mute and the blind, and the mentally unstable, and a bleeding woman. That's his pattern, and it fits his purpose. Religion excludes and shuns and banishes. The kingdom includes and welcomes and adopts. Religion dehumanizes people. The kingdom rehumanizes people. Jesus takes these exception clauses and turns them upside down, which leads us to at least two implications. The first is very personal. There is no cause, condition, character flaw, or failure that makes me an exception to the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Not one. I'm going to give you an example. Some of us have owned and carried the shame of sexual sin for so long that we believe it to be normal. It is not. I don't care how many people you've slept with, I don't care if you experiment in college. I don't care if you were sexually exploited by someone older. You aren't an exception. You aren't a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. You aren't contaminated. You aren't unclean. You just aren't. There's no cause or condition or character flaw or failure, failure that makes me an exception to the grace and the mercy of Jesus. The second implication is a question. OK, church. who falls under my personal exception clause? It dawned on me recently that one of the reasons that Christians feel free to say horrible, ugly things on the internet is that many of us have our own personal exception clauses. We have a list of the kinds of people who don't count, you know, love your enemy, except if they... Pray for those who persecute unless they, I heard this said once, when a Christian says I can't stand Black Lives Matter because they're all communists, it begs the question, so are all communist exceptions or just those who are part of Black Lives Matter? As followers of this Jesus, when do we have permission to hate or dismiss or exclude a person or a group of people? I believe that this healing encounter presents an urgent and serious question. Who is an exception for me? You know the truth, right? If I'm going to pledge my allegiance to Jesus Christ, I can't have an exception clause. If he didn't, I can't. It doesn't work that way. So honestly, truthfully, who's an exception for Jesus? If I'm a follower of Jesus then whatever group was his exception, can be my exception. If I'm following him, I can't make an exception for the grace and the mercy and the love and the inclusion of God that he doesn't make. If he makes it, sure, fine. You can exclude all you want. But if he doesn't, I can't. It really is that simple. Finally, there's something really powerful going on here. It it requires us to see things through the lens of the experience of a first century Jew. So there's a little background. First, first. If you've ever encountered today an Orthodox Jew, you might have noticed among the men that they wear clothes where little tassels or strings will be coming out kind of front and back on the sides. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever seen that? It comes from a command in Numbers chapter 15. Where God told him, he says, listen, throughout the generations you're to come make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You have these tassels to look at, and you'll remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey him. Okay? So God said, I want you to wear tassels on your clothes, on the four corners of your cloak. There's two important Hebrew words that you need to know from this. The first is tzitzit, T-Z-I, T-Z-I-T, tzitzit. That's literally the tassels that come off the corners. The tzitzit are connected to the kanaf. Kanaf. That means the corners. Okay? Kanaf means corner. Sometimes it means wings. Watch this. In Malachi chapter four, verse two, it says, if you fear my name, the son of righteousness, righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, his kanaf. The rabbinic tradition held that this was a clear reference to the Messiah, that he would have healing in his wings. The Messiah would have healing in the corners of his cloak where the tzitzit are, the Messiah would have healing in the tassels on the corner of his robe. She wasn't just blindly reaching out to him. She knew who he was. She was convinced that he was the pr- promised Messiah of God who would usher in a new kingdom and that there would be healing in the edges of his clothes. In Matthew, and later on in Mark, we see she wasn't the only one. They describe how whenever Jesus entered a town, people wanted to touch the fringe of his cloak. What are we talking about? We're talking about those tassels. And whoever did that, Mark says, Matthew says, they were healed. So that's what Jesus meant when he says, woman, your faith has healed you. Jesus thinks she's awesome because she believes so strongly that if she could just get to the corner of his clothes, she'd be healed. Because that's where her scripture said healing would be. It's as pure and powerful an example of what faith is as there is. It's what faith does. It's how faith acts faith takes what I know to be true about the Messiah and puts it into practice. If she'd come to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah with healing in the corners of his clothes and she had stayed home no healing her faith couldn't have healed her If she watched from far away because she didn't want to offend anyone. Her faith could not have healed her her faith healed her when she reached for the corner of his clothes. Faith is never just thought. Faith is action. Faith doesn't just believe something to be true. Faith acts because it believes something to be true. Faith always includes a verb. Faith verbs it reaches out it trusts it begins it gives it welcomes it prays it speaks it exercises self control it hopes it perseveres faith always verbs it only lasted a few seconds her body her body could not have been very strong Her heart must have been pounding so loud that she thought everyone could hear it. And then it got drowned out by the noise of the crowd as they came around the corner with Jesus in the middle. And she only had one chance. She was she she was tired of trying. So this was her last shot. If not now, never. If not him, no one. So she took a deep breath and waited until he was close enough. And she covered up so no one would recognize her and send her away. The crowd almost crushed her against the wall, but with everything she had left, she stretched and barely felt one of the tassels go through her hands. And instantly she knew, instantly, she knew what had happened. She knew who he was, and she knew who she was again. She knew what it meant. and then he turned and he looked right at her right at her and she thought she was in big trouble <laughs> so she panicked and spilled the beans and told him everything it took a while for what he said to sink in not until the crowd had marched on and carried Jesus along with them and she was left alone in the middle of the street. Did it register? He called me daughter. He called me daughter. It only took a few seconds. Let's pray together. God, I'm humbled and amazed. at the power and the grace of Jesus and his intense commitment to include and bring in and restore and redeem. God, my heart's especially heavy this morning for those who have tried for years, done everything they know how to do and still feel like outsiders, still feel like They're contaminated in some way, still feel broken, still feel unclean. And they've heard the words, they've heard the message, they've heard the announcement of grace, they've heard the announcement of forgiveness, and still there remains a sense of being on the outside looking in, of something being desperately broken and desperately wrong. I pray this morning that by that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak through this story, through this beautiful, amazing woman and through the astounding mercy of Jesus. And that there would be a sense of son or daughter. There'd be a growing relaxation and peace and acceptance of knowing knowing that our faith does, in fact, heal. That it makes us whole again. And those who would those who would continue to to put shame and distance and guilt where it doesn't belong, God, I pray that you would Free us and give us a sense of what it means to be a son or a daughter in the kingdom of God. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.